from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, how are you doing? Welcome once again to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am one of the trio of hosts, DB Spitzer. To my virtual right, I have Gretchen Brooks and David, the goat herder, Heath. How's it going, yeah. everyone? Are you ready to talk Cthulhu? Are you ready? <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Or Cthulhu adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> How are you two doing today? That's <laughs> doing good. Okay, well. cool. Despite melting from the heat. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just a uh, time check for everyone. It is August 17th uh, when we're recording this. It is super hot in the Pacific Northwest. Um, yeah. But, yeah. How, uh, yeah. Where's my Twin Peaks fantasy weather? I need it back. I know, I know. Just a, just a few more months, and we'll we'll be in that rainy, cloudy wonderfulness. Why everyone stays in the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, and for those that are worried, the goats are doing well. Goats Good. are okay. The goats are okay in heat wave as long as they're well watered. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Kind of like me. I'm I'm the you, same way. As long as I'm well watered, I do all right. Do you have yeah. to spray them down? Nah, nah, just keep them, keep their water all, <laughs> their buckets full. All right. Okay, cool. All right. So, yeah. Um, anything fun and exciting happened with you two this week? Well, the, coming up this weekend, I'm doing the, going to be at the Queer Horrors, Queer Screams Film Festival at um, Clinton Street Theater, put on by JT. <laughs> awesome awesome i should yeah, try and check that's that the out guy who uh i would did a short and i did a little bit of voiceover work in his short film so i'm i'm really stoked to see his curation of films because he's got pretty good taste and he does some fun backyard movies like last weekend we watched speak no evil <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> have you guys ever seen that movie it's like 1981 i think or something gene wilder question mark 
No, no, no. I oh. wish it was. It, I wish. No, it was more <laughs> like it feels like three films that were like half done. And they were like, ooh, you know, we should put this films together and make one big film. I don't think it was, but I don't know much of the meta on that film. But other than that, it is ridiculous. We have to one time watch it for this podcast. Okay. There's there's possession. There's devils. There's teenagers. There's um, naked men. Yeah. As, Some as weird telekinesis. Is. I don't know. Huh. All right. <laughs> You're like, Speak no evil. Okay. Oh, yeah, the the Gene Wilder movie was see no evil, see hear no, no evil. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Why be see no evil? I don't remember. I'll look it up. <laughs> Other than that, um, my friends that I haven't seen in 27 years are coming to visit. Oh my gosh. Oh wow, very cool. Yeah, like the only I think I maybe have like four friends that are from my like teenage years, uh-huh. and one of him and his wife are coming up to visit. It's gonna be. It's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm oh, super nice. excited. Very cool. Very cool. How about you guys? You got anything going on? Any festivals? Uh, next or uh, this upcoming weekend, uh, I am going to be in Boring, Oregon, selling ray guns and dragons and Ooh. miscellaneous prints and cool stuff like that. Oh, cool. When I first moved to um, Oregon and somebody told me they were from Boring, I was like, no, Oregon's not boring. It's really nice. And they were like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. So Sorry. nobody listening to this cares. But do you know who Boring was? No. He was a major in the Civil War and a, a Civil War hero. And after mm. the war, he moved up to uh, Oregon to the corner of the uh, timber market. And so the wow. area that he bought is where the city Boring, Oregon is now. Okay, oh. that makes sense. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it can't get me a job and it won't be on a test, I know it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always refer to myself as like a font of useless knowledge. Like, yeah. Uh. oh yeah, yeah. No, I I remember back before uh, the internet was a thing or iPhones were a thing. Honestly. Uh, and everyone didn't just use their iPhone to look stuff up. I used to get calls at the weirdest times about like random facts. Like people would be like, hey, what was Teen Wolf's dad's name? No, no, not in the movie, in the cartoon. Wow. Oh, cool. thanks, dude. Click. Or like, hey, hey, uh, what can I substitute uh, uh, kimchi for? And I'm like, Hot sauce, like, uh, use, like, a chili sauce and sauerkraut. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but, like... That's wild, though. Yeah, no, no, it was, like, pre-iPhone era. I used to get weird calls all the time from everyone I knew, back when, like, people used to remember phone numbers. (laughs) I use different parts of my brain now. (laughs) But... Anyways. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, Speaking of things that people have to look up on the internet because the sources are so wide and varied and everything. uh, Stygia, Dave, can you tell us about this country of the Hyborian age, Stygia, and why we should care about it? So, first of all, Stygia, of course, is going to be in the Conan stories. Yes. And we've kind of alluded it to the past. So Robert E. Howard 
basically wrote himself into a corner on the call. He could only get three stories out. Mm. And he decided that he was going to do a little bit differently. He was going to create the world and then create the character. So he was going to make Hyboria, and then he was going to create Conan. So yes. he bounced across the Texas-Mexican border in his own words, uh, eating enchiladas and drinking uh, cheap Spanish wine. Not and a bad he, way to work on stuff, in my opinion. Know, and, and so, yeah, he, he created the Hyborian Age, which was kind of his textbook and the textbook that people are going to use to write the Conan stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Stygia, of course, is his Egypt. Now, I'm showing this in front of everyone. Speaking of having to look it up on the internet only, you can't see this. But in my hand, I have a copy of Modiphius's, uh for the uh, Robert E. Howard Conan Adventures in an Age of undream- uh, Undreamt of uh, role-playing game. Okay. Conan oh. the Adventurer, which is... This basically covers the southern kingdoms, including Stygia. So so it basically tells you how to run an adventure in Stygia. And so the main thing that they emphasize in that book is that it's a theocracy. And that it is ruled by an evil god. Basically Robert E. Howard's version of Set. So Mm -hmm. it's basically evil Egypt. And yeah, be, I mean, this is the time shortly after, within I think ten years or so, that Carter opened up King Tut's tomb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So America, the West, is going through an Egypt phase, an Egypt crazy phase. Oh, okay. And I think that I think Howard only put a couple of his adventures actually in Stygia. Okay. Now, he did write some stories that took place in Egypt. Yeah. That when in the 60s they were rewriting it, they converted them into Conan stories in Stygia. Oh. Okay. A couple of questions. So, doesn't Conan reference the witches of Stygia in Conan the Destroyer? Oh. Like he calls them like the black, um, oh, I think he calls them like the black witches or something like that. But also in the remake of Conan, isn't that where um, Rose McGowan's character is from? Is um, she Stygian? She's like a like a priestess or something like that. Probably Confession Time. Yeah, I couldn't get it through that movie. I know it's real bad, but. Like, I just want to see it because of Rose McGowan, and I was like, yay, support oh, her. Yeah. I, I thought Jason Manoa looked good, but yeah. Yeah, just, he just wasn't, he's too hot to be freaking Conan, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. I mean, I really, I'm a, I'm kind of one of those people that are hoping for, like, a King Conan kind of situation, like, with age Arnold Schwarzenegger being older, yeah. and wouldn't that be rad? That would be pretty cool. I, I, yeah. I agree. Maybe more rad 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> they could always see age them like uh, Harrison Ford, put some uh, CG muscles on him, whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So they're oh definitely. Oh my gosh, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, and so I, I honestly, I, I'm not that familiar with the movies. Yeah. I'm not even sure I've seen the second one. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, but you know who is from Stygia? Whom? The only person that I can think of off the top of my head that Conan ran away from. And that's Akavasha, the female vampire. Oh. She was a, a Stygian uh, princess or some sort of princess, uh, some royal Stygian bloodline. All right. Yeah, I'm limited in my knowledge based on only things I've seen or with. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I haven't read if there's like a story that's about Stygia. I've not read it for sure. I always feel there should have been a Conan cartoon at some point in time. It didn't have to be there for was. kids. What? There was. It's called Conan the Explorer. Oh, man. I didn't know <laughs> about that. Oh, yeah, totally. And I wish there could be like some sort of like, I don't know, show about Conan that had adventures, but. <laughs> Wasn't there one? Like from... Yeah, no, there was Conan the Adventures. I can't remember who was even in that, but. Conan, I think it's Conan. Conan. Oh, oh, you mean the actors? Yeah, I can't remember who was the uh, main actor who played Conan in that, but Conan so, the Adventure cartoon. Yeah. So, so one thing also. 1992. Huh. Yeah. So one thing also about Howard is that mm -hmm. he has basically his version and Conan, the closest thing to Narothotep. Uh huh is going to be set. And set, okay. of course, is based on a real Egyptian god. Sure. Yeah. But, but set, I'd always seen in Egyptian art as being donkey-headed. Yeah. But Oh, I thought set was a jackal of sorts. Yeah. Uh, I think that's Anubis. That's Anubis? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, what does set look like? But Conan, but Howard basically makes gives him a, a serpent head. Okay. And the serpent people are actually going to be a survivor are in the Cole books, but they get mixed up by later writers, and I believe the comic book writers, and put in the Conan world. All right. This is me googling. <laughs> Okay. No, well, so I like, mean, he's okay. So he's yeah. a set is an a set animal is Shaw. Uh, he is could be they say aardvark, wild dog, donkey, hyena, jackal, pig, antelope, giraffe, um, saluki, or fennec fox. Because I was like, I'm pretty sure Seth's like an aardvark or something. <laughs> I like all of our interpretations are actually correct. Yeah, yes. I just always assumed it was a badly driven, uh, uh, drawn uh, uh, donkey. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a donkey that sounds like, hey guys, I'm a donkey, I swear. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. So back to Stygia. <laughs> and the, the, the limited info. The other thing I only think I know about Stygia also is like in from uh, this silly, like from Vampire the Masquerade, Wraith. Uh huh. And the world that the Wraiths live in is Stygia. 
Okay. And that's basically like whatever the underworld is. And, and, in, and in Greek, Greek mythology, Stygia, you know, was, uh, I believe, a river in hell. Okay, okay. okay. The Styx is a river in hell. But I thought there was multiple. Oh, I thought, okay. I, I could be wrong. I am not super well-versed knowledge on the, this, yeah, on Egyptian gods, <laughs> especially. <laughs> I feel like I should know more. I think when I was a kid, I really liked Egyptian mythology, but uh -huh. um, kind of got out of it for whatever reason. Okay. okay. And of course, um, of course, um, Egypt is based on the Nile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Howard creates this river called At the Amazon River, uh, which is basically his world's version of the Nile. Okay. So how is this? Lovecraft, Dan, or how is this um, Cthulhu mythos? Is it because Robert E. Howard is so closely associated with it, or do you think it's because we can consider it that way because of Narthletep and those kinds of gods? I I personally feel because of the fact that like Set is a very much kind of like Conan-based like uh, Narlethotep. This is mm -hmm. just the Cthulhu mythos, but thousands and thousands of years ago when, and, and it's like, it doesn't play a huge part, but when Conan dives deep into stuff, he's, he finds this stuff. It's, it's like cool. how the Cthulhu mythos is in our world. It's like, it's not something that anyone can find. And, you know, uh, Conan isn't like, Conan the occult detective he's Conan the barbarian he's King Conan he's he's all these things and maybe Conan the explorer would find the Cthulhu mythos but Conan the barbarian's uh motivations are different <laughs> and it's 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 like uh the lamentations of women and things like that exactly exactly and if you had like a short story if if Lovecraft wrote a short story and the 20s called Bob the Thug or Two Gun Bob. It wouldn't be about the Cthulhu mythos. It'd probably be about like, oh, unfortunately, I don't, I don't want to say what it'd probably be. Yeah, don't about, say it. <laughs> but um, it would have little, little to do with cults. Um, but it would be like actiony and stuff like that. But Lovecraft didn't write action stories. Uh, it, well, you know, dot dot dot. Well, dot, 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 <laughs> shadow over. He did write a, a, a story that he gave to, it wasn't meant to be published, but it's published now. He sent to Robert Barlow about how the boxer, Two-Gun Bob, and he started putting everyone in the circle, how how uh, how, um, how Howard was basically trying to fight everybody. And, no, that's, so. that's, that's kind of I, like, I was joking about something like that, but that's kind of like a, what I was thinking. Like if, if, if Lovecraft wrote a story about like Robert E. Howard as like a character, he wouldn't include the Cthulhu mythos, not because of the fact that Howard wasn't about the Cthulhu mythos, but it's more of an action story and mm. people who are more about action until like some sort of like librarian or antiquarian or octogenarian 
says, hey, there's something weird going on over here. I need a brawler type, which isn't really a Lovecraftian trope, but yeah. I mean, brawler types really don't end up in Lovecraft stories. So I feel kind of like that's one reason that like Lovecraft exists or uh, Lovecraftian entities exist in Robert E. Howard's world, but it's only when, like, sorcerers show up to be like, oh, yeah, I've got this thing going on, or princesses are like, I need to escape this thing, or this thing is trying to take over our kingdom. Mm -hmm. Kind of like how Clark Ashton Smith, it's like he writes all kinds of stories, but the Lovecraftian-type stories don't really happen unless, like, the thief-type guys are out doing something or he writes something specific about like someone going after a necromancer, but it's 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 less of the call to action and more of the uh, uh, I don't know rude awakening that uh, uh, Clark Ashton Smith kind of throws in the uh, the the Cthulhu mythos stuff, and less of like it's the reason to do stuff, but you end up somewhere and then you find it. Cool. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a dialogue or a monologue. No, I mean that. I mean, answered my question. I tidied it up honestly, and just was curious. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that that automatically. I mean that 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 felt like I don't know, like logria or automatic writing, but verbally, it's like it came out of my brain, and I wasn't even like thinking about it. <laughs> I've been doing this for a while, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. But yeah, no. Uh. I really think Stygia is a cool thing to use. It's a cool influence for like uh, role-playing games, writing. Uh, I, I don't know if Stygia is public domain currently, or if you could just say Stygia and make up your own Stygia, I believe, because, I mean, that's part of mythology, but as it goes with the Conan universe, I don't know if you can say Conan Stygia without bunch of swedish people getting upset with you yeah it's kind of like the feelings of my heart complicated yeah yeah so i yeah (laughs) i'm not sure specifically if stygia is trademarked yeah or not like conan is sure um so i'm yeah i'm i'm not sure if you are thinking of writing a stygian story you're probably better off Note: This is not legal advice, nor are we lawyers. You're probably better off giving it your own name. Yeah, yeah, or or changing the G to an X and just saying that it's the land that borders the sticks, because yeah. <laughs> no one can mess with the sticks except yes. for the band sticks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Up next, Dave, do we have any idea what the middle part is? Yes, and this part will be deleted if it doesn't happen, but we're going to talk a little bit about Edward Page Mitchell. And if he invented things like fiction covering Invisible Man, teleporting, time travel, and faster than the speed of light stories, cool. why is he most famous for being played by Ed Asner? In yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds like fun. And after that, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite movies to put on in the background for a party or like 
if it comes on cable. I don't know. I I love it. If I see it, I watch it. It's kind of it's. I wouldn't say it's like a guilty pleasure because this movie isn't a guilty pleasure. This movie is awesome, and this is a Gretchen pick that did not make me have to talk to my counselor. So <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. All right. So we'll be talking about Houseu, 1977, not uh, 1980-whatever's house, but Houseu. All right. In Legacy Door, a lurker from space casts a shadow over time. We opened our eyes upon the human world. We found ourselves lying on an especially yielding bed in a room displaying scattered relics of their shallow past tied together by more recently produced items meant to blend with the relics. Typical. A sensitive journalist dreams of unknown lives. It seems like every time I close my eyes, they get stronger. I can't even say the last time I had a normal sleep, let alone a dreamless one. An outspoken lawyer defends the suspect in an unspeakable crime. And that client was Jonathan Strauss held for the murder of his daughter, Abigail, and her companion, Harrison Reese. And the stalwart investigator tries to drag it all into the light. Some of the Reeses and the Strausses have been involved with something that seems to include an obsession with bloodlines and longevity for at least decades. Legacy Door is a weekly cosmic horror mystery podcast. An ensemble of actors tell a story, also available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Available now. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. I want to tell you all about something. I want to tell you about a guy I know in a place. This is James Corner of the podcast. It is awesome. It's gonna go fast. It's not the interview pod. Ha ha. Hey everybody, it's me, Farmer Dave, and today we're going to talk about something that we've kind of breached in a little bit uh, in the past week, and that is Edward Page Mitchell, the inventor of modern science fiction. Well, not really kind of, yes, I'll explain. So, there is no real answer to this question. Although a lot of people are going to say, yes, I have the answer. And by the way, yes, I have the answer. When was the first science fiction story? 
And there's a lot of arguments, and, well, they're all true. Some people would say, you know, there's that Japanese legend where fishwoman comes down from the stars. Or maybe, you know, the story in Africa about fish people coming down from the stars. Hmm, that's kind of weird. You know, other people say, you know, Shakespeare invented science fiction in The Tempest. Well, maybe the first, well, I don't know, maybe the first mad scientist, but, you know, that's not necessarily where I am. Others think, well, you know, Gulliver's uh, Travels was the first science fiction story. And I kind of get it. Me, I'm pretty much, and I know this is kind of late to the, the party, uh, time-wise, but I kind of mark the first modern science fiction story as Frankenstein. Definitely there's an argument to be had that uh, or be held that modern science fiction really started with Verne and Wells. And I'm going to talk about somebody who comes in pretty much in between the two. And that is Edward Page Mitchell. Now, last week we talked about, or I talked about, his story, uh, The uh, Backwards Clock, which is basically seen as the first of the time travel stories, predating even Twain's uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Now, there's somebody who's listening to this and saying, well, actually, Merlin lived his life backwards, and the original King Arthur story, so he's the first time travel. Yeah, but I, I don't really, I wouldn't really call, you know, King Arthur uh, science fiction, even though they're supposed to be a bunch of 5th century knights running around in 15th century armor. So maybe they are science fiction, but I digress. So the stories that are written by Mitchell are just amazing and way ahead of their time. So the question comes in, why isn't Mitchell up there with Vernon Wells? That's Vern and Wells, not Vernon Wells that sounds like the leader of a cult. So last week we said that he invented the first of the time travel stories. Um, but he also invented the first of the cyberpunk stories. Well, not really, and yes, I know that the term cyberpunk was invented by Berth Betke, and I probably will do a show on that someday. Mitchell wrote a story called The Ablest Man in the World, which is about a man whose brain is replaced with what Mitchell calls a computer. But it's basically a wind-up clockwork computer uh, akin to uh, Babbage's difference engine as opposed to the computer that we think of. And he was basically a mentally impaired child and the scientist cut off his head, made a screw, a silver screw top, and put in a computer brain. Does that or does that not sound like cyberpunk? And a, a traveling academic is mistaken for a doctor, a medical doctor, when this man starts having an attack and he discovers the secret. 
and he basically tricks the mad scientist who created it into revealing what was happening. And he realized that this guy was designed and is capable of taking over the world. In a lot of ways, this is one of the prototype supervillains. And so the scientist or the professor basically took the, um, the difference engine, put it in a bag when he was traveling back to America, and threw it in the water. And he hears this screeching, which is probably, he hopes, a seagull, but maybe something else. Now, before I went over that, I should have told you there would be spoilers. Spoilers for a story which was written 139 years ago. But it's obscure, and so that's why a lot of people may not have heard these stories. And so, yes, I should have done a much better job of putting a spoilers warning in the beginning because of that. And if I've just ruined uh, Edward Mitchell Page for you, or Edward Page Mitchell, I'm sorry, for you, I apologize. So here's a hot piece of irony. Steampunk is basically considered, I mean, yes, you've got the Victorian writings of Wells and Verne, but modern steampunk is basically seen as being invented by Bruce Sterling and William Gibson in The Difference Engine. And I'm not sure if either one of them had read uh, The Ablest Man in the, the World, I'm almost willing to bet they had. Uh, it would have been republished by that time. And so this genre-defining book that they wrote is about the same type of machinery that Mitchell wrote about. But And remember, these are the two dudes that basically invented not only steampunk, but cyberpunk. Mitchell out both steampunks and cyberpunks them a hundred years before they're published. Well played, sir. Well played. In a another story, basically Mitchell invents faster speed of light travel, which he calls, you know, infinite speed. And in this story, he has this man-machine called an android that can do math and write poetry. Mitchell writes a story called The Crystal Man, which is about a man who turns invisible. Again, he wrote this just like he wrote, you know, before Wells' time machine. He wrote this before Wells wrote The Invisible Man. He wrote a story called His Determined to Remain, which is about a ghost that is actually accidentally given a solid body by a median, and he goes in to get revenge on a town that killed him. Um, in kind of inspiring, and I would love to know if maybe this is where the fog came from. He's going to write a story about basically freezing a human being so that he could be revived later on. I mean, it was a story about cryogenics when the term didn't exist. He wrote stories about men teleporting before the idea of teleporting. 
he wrote about women getting the vote in America before women had the right to vote in the United States. It has a story in the senator's, um, oh, the senator's daughter. It tells a story that says, well, in the story it says that the 27th Amendment of the United States would be basically your right to, if you didn't like lives, freeze yourself until you could be thought out to a period of time that was better off for you. In reality, the 27th Amendment of the Constitution basically says that the senators and congressmen can't vote for a pay increase. It kicks into the next election where they may or may not have been voted out. But that's okay. He didn't have to get it right. So why is Mitchell not better known? And I think that the reason for this is lack of circulation in his lifetime. Because he published almost exclusively in the newspaper that he edited, The Sun. There are a few stories that were published elsewhere, but almost all of it was written in The Sun, or published in The Sun, and almost all of it was what appears to have been filler. That it was added to take up space, which... It wouldn't have been that uncommon for newspapers back then to have poems or stories or some sort of fiction to take up space. And in a lot of ways, I think Mitchell loved telling these stories. I think he loved writing them. But in a lot of ways, it was his duty as an editor of The Sun to publish them. Now... We're going to talk a little bit more uh, and about Mitchell, why Mitchell um, wasn't as famous, how he did get to some degree of fame after he died, and why people in his stories often have very strange last names. But this is going to come up a little bit later. Hopefully we're going to have some some interviews, and we'll continue this on. But if this is something you're interested in and knowing more, uh, by all means, send us, you know, email us, let us know, and we can definitely continue down this vein. All right. Um, moving on to the next part, just to remind everyone, if you like what you're hearing, like this episode, share it with people, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook, we're under People's Guide, the Cthulhu mythos. We're on Twitter. I don't really check Twitter, so it's just kind of the automatic feed if you just want to listen to us on Twitter for some reason. You can find us on any place, any podcatchers that are out there. Of course, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, the YouTube, where this episode will be. And, uh, yeah. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Glary. Glary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Glary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, They've got saxophones, trumpets, drums. They've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. 
Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20-watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. This part of the show doesn't have a theme song. This part of the show doesn't have a theme song. Dave and D.B. Hello, everyone. We are back. Dave and Gretchen, still to my virtual right. How are you two doing? Good. Well, still. Good, good, good. All right. So, Gretchen, can you tell us about House? House Soup? Oh, man. This production direction of Nobuhiku Obayashi, who is kind of more renowned for his, like, commercials and stuff. But I suppose this actually kind of put him on the the like spectrum to people for especially like cult films oh, because yeah. at first um Hasu was not well liked it was not well received it was kind of all over the place because it had been shot without a storyboard and okay. it took about two months to do it and oh, a lot boy. of the story and a lot of the writing came from not really like specifically from his daughter but like he would ask his daughter to tell him about her her nightmares and he kind of included those things in, in the form of, like, um, the mirror that attacks you and um, the uh, keyboard or the piano that um, consumes you. Oh. But so our story is said where we have a young girl named Gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> um, each of the girls get kind of these interesting names like. Uh, Kung Fu Prof. She's academic. Melody is affinity for music. Kung Fu is a very athletic. And then Mac, which is short for stomach, because she's got a really big appetite. Oh. Who is um, like really gentle and like very bubbly. And then Fantasy, who is a big daydreamer. Mm-hmm. So all of her friends are going to come with her because she's super mad at her dad for. Finding a new girlfriend after her mother had died. How dare he move on with his life? Yeah. And we go to visit our aunt in that we haven't visited in a long time. What could go wrong? Sure, of course. Bananas, bananas, bananas. <laughs> Gosh, guys, you know, so like this is one of my like I, I when you were talking about comfort films and things like that so this is yeah. one of my super comfort films definitely i love this film upon the first time i saw it i immediately fell in love with it's like sugary dreamy um psychedelic i i can't i can tell you the first time i saw it was at this like coffee shop in like in new orleans uh-huh. and they were showing it was like a they were having like a late night art show And this was like projected on one of the walls. And I found myself being like totally not even caring about the art and just watching this film and being blown away by how wild it was. And it took me a couple of years before I could find it. And it took Uh me to like like, probably to like the year 2000. And I finally found it on um, streaming. I'm not streaming services, but like somebody had given me um, a ripped copy of a VHS from Japan. Yeah. Oh, boy. It was bad quality. (laughs) 
but it's always been my heart. And it's just one of those like absurd films because it's not, it's not technically scary. It's also a little lurid, a little risque, you know, it has a lot of qualities. So what'd you guys think? I, 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 uh, my history with it is I got a VHS copy in like 97 and it, it was one of those things that I would like chop up and edit into like a bunch of movies to play mm-hmm. in the background at a party on like a big TV or something like that. Just kind of like visual images and stuff like that. But I always liked it. And I would watch uh, my buddy's copy of it whenever uh, like I was over at his folks place. And yeah. it was just like such a crazy movie. And uh, I don't think I saw a subtitled copy of it until probably about 2003, 2004. Yeah, yeah, same. And I so, think it didn't even get to um, Criterion until like 2009 or something like that. Okay, yeah. But there's just, I mean, there's a ton of imagery in this film. There's, I mean, you could go everywhere from like, um, Nobuhiku, um, Hiko, he like was born right. He was born in um, Hiroshima and it mm-hmm. like all of that happened when he was little. And yeah. I, there's moments in the film that have these kind of like, um, almost like heat flashes of like, of, of the war feeling. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. then it being the 70s, like this is 1977. Mm-hmm. So we're also like coming, reeling back from like um, the world, uh, from Vietnam and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Japan's, whatever Japan stock and all that was. Yeah. Yeah. What did, so what else? What about you, David? What do you think? I know you so, said you have a lot. So, so like, I always have a lot, but. <laughs> So I have been aware of it. I had never sat down and watched the whole thing before. Yeah. And okay. to me, I think it's a lot like It Follows. It pays okay. off what you bring in. Yes. You can either, it's a very, it's an onion. If you yes. want to, and the same person at different times, you could watch it at a very shallow level because you just need to see the color and the goofiness. Absolutely. Or it can be rather deep. It's what you want to invest in it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, like and, the aunt. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. Go keep no, going. No, no, no. That's fine. You keep going. Okay. And to me, it's like a collection of a lot. Of, I saw a lot of things I recognized or I thought I recognized in it. Mm-hmm. Um, many of which were probably not intentional. Like the dancing skeletons. Yeah. That reminds me of those like 1930s, like Melody, Mary Melody cartoons with, you know, Porky Pig and the Scorpion. I mean, the skeletons all dance around. Absolutely. I'm sure it was. Yeah. Or, and, you know, we probably should have some sort of generic warning spoilers. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. This movie came out in 1977 and has been on the Criterion Collection since 2009. Mm-hmm. You're now being warned of spoilers. For real. Yes. <laughs> but I saw, and, and I'm the, sure I'm the only person that ever saw this comparison, but Red Hook, I saw as a comparison with Thomas Malone 
or not Red Hook, I'm sorry, Kung Fu, I saw as a comparison with Thomas Malone from the horror at Red Hook. Okay. Okay. That, that you know, she just beats the crap. There's no human being that could not withstand or the, she's the human being best at or had the best chance of fighting yeah. the supernatural and she destroys a lot of, of it. Thomas Malone was, oh, he had studied uh, Kabbalism and supernatural and detective. He had the best chance of understanding and defeating the supernatural and mm-hmm. the horror at Red Hook, and they were both overwhelmed. Yeah, I yeah. can see that. When you're talking about putting what you put into it, um, there's there's interesting things. Like there's moments, right? So like. This is um, the, a time era and also of, of change in Japan as well. And like mm-hmm. the the older ways are starting to kind of go away. And like a lot of the uh, boomery generation, like the, these are the boomers, mm-hmm. the kids, this, these teenagers are yeah. like the boomers in this movie. And like, so the, whatever that generation before the boomers is, doesn't matter. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, but like, so those people felt disenfranchised, but like they weren't taking care of their elders. You know, they were, they saw boomers as like extravagant and, and very like, um, without, uh, that they were loose morals and whatnot. And you could see that speckled all over this, like mm-hmm. the, the, like the aunt, for instance, in her wheelchair and then her, her like feeding off of them essentially. And like being able to move through the house and yeah. um, how the, the girls are, they take on these roles of like, they're, they're trying to do what they think is the right thing, but they're also young women and trying to live their lives yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And here's something else, and, and Gretchen, you probably know this a lot better than I do. What's that? But the impression that I got from the aunt was she was, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this, Gakai, or is it Gaki? She's like, um, yeah, she's kind of, she's like, a, she's like a yure, like she's an obake, she's a, she's a monster. Yeah. But, but I, she, yeah, so she's kind of like a Gaki. Yeah, I mean, this is the same kind of thing. It's all in the same realm. And that she was trying to feed off their youth. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, she even makes mention of it in like when they're doing like the reading diary sequence. It's like, let me spill out for you what's happening in the film when <laughs> Professor is laying on the um, is in the sea of blood and she's like reading from the diary. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. But and, yeah. I, I had heard, and someone else I, I saw while I was just doing a little research on, on this on YouTube, and that yeah. they felt that this was kind of, and again, what you bring into it, sort of a commentary on arranged marriage in Japan. Interesting. Oh. About, you know, the, the teacher, you know, having, saying that she's in an arranged marriage or going to be arranged marriage, but not necessarily she loves them. And that oh. these were different things values of women that society we marry they either exploit or try to destroy like intelligence and this is true or are by how bizarre they were Mm -hmm. yeah 
I mean, if you think about it, like think about the way the girls dialogue is, I mean, that's um, absurd. Nobody actually thinks like this. It's very childish. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And like the whole color schemes and all of the surreal aspects are very like, like candy colored, like, um, like a technicolor dream sequences almost. Okay. Even Kung Fu says, this isn't realistic. This has got to be an illusion. Exactly. Yeah. So the other thing, and I, and I, and I did see that before I saw this, that a lot of this was influenced by his 10 year old daughter. But yeah, the other thing yeah. it reminds me of was Axe Cop. <laughs> because because Axe it was Cop, written by a kid, practically. Yeah, it was written by a 10-year-old. And, and the same thing. It's how a 10-year-old writes a story, you know, tells a story. And then they're at the house, and the ant is really a ghost monster. And, oops, i got to make it bigger and bigger. Oh, and then the piano eats her. And then the other oh, right. girl kicks the cat picture. But only half of her, because the other half gets disappeared in a... In a lamp, you know, it's how 10-year-old. His daughter, Chigumi, she, like, like that's what he would do. He would sit there and be like, all right, tell me about your dreams. and Tell me about your fears. And then he would, like, write those into the script. Yeah. That's fun. That's yeah. <laughs> that's crazy fun. Yeah. I definitely saw it as, I mean, fears that children have. Absolutely. Yeah. Even down to like the last parts where um, she grabs fantasy and pulls her up to her and she's like naked boob and she's all mommy. <laughs> I was like, really? I mean, this movie is so bizarre. Yes. And like, again, like you said, you could put whatever you want into it and it, you generally can find it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So often I've just kind of like watched this movie as like kind of like a weird thrill ride and never given it much thought it's just like it's candy yeah it's well it's i really wish did you know this director was like also on a totally on a kaiju level beyond the fact that it's a shot in the largest lot at um toho studios yeah i knew it was and, a toho film but yeah. i didn't know that it was like anyone with uh kaiju had anything to do with this no so that's what i was trying to say is um he was he actually wrote a, a space Godzilla like story. It was never, it never went anywhere, but oh, it's kind of okay. like one of those films that people are like, wow, what would that have fucking been like? I mean, sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry, what would that have been like? Yeah. My bad, I cussed. So the thing that this reminds me of, and it's like, I wonder if it influenced in some way is like when you have a TV show or a movie where you have like a bunch of Japanese girls that all have their independent personalities, whether they be magic girls or occult detectives or anything like that, or just like teen drama kind of stuff or soccer club manga. Um, I, I, I'm curious if this is like the antithesis of that, if this is like where that came from. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, I wonder how influential this was, like, in, like, the early 80s. And the other thing is I wanted to say that the character Kung Fu really, really, really reminds me of the character of Lum from uh, Urusai uh, Yatsura. I never say that right, but I'm 
that's I think as close as I can get. Oh yeah. But, yeah, but the uh, uh, manga anime. How does she remind you of Lum? I'm curious. Uh, uh, like the shorts and the action and stuff like that, and her oh, personality. Yeah. Like very kind of like I am this. This is who I am. I'm gonna do this. Just, um, I mean, un- unfortunately, it's not like in this story, Kung Fu's not in love with a loser. So you know, it's totally different. <laughs> but, uh, but Kung Fu's character, like her shorts, reminded me of uh, Lum's uh, zebra shorts, and like just like, like I feel like the guy who wrote that may have like seen house a lot and like been like, or, or had a book that had like poses from it or something, but it's, it's like, I would see Kung Fu doing something and be like, that reminds me of Lum, but. Oh yeah. 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 My favorite character in this whole, besides the aunt, which I dressed up as for Halloween, by the way, awesome. a awesome. couple of years ago, back in the 2020. Sure. Um, because it was like, I have to have a costume I can wear around the house. And it was like, oh, oh well, the mom wears, a, the grandma, I mean, the aunt wears a nightgown. And I do have white blonde hair. Why not? <laughs> so my friend um, wore, like, all black. And he, off off camera, like, made a skeleton move while we shot a couple of TikTok-style videos. It was pretty Oh, fun. that's fun. I'll, that's I'll cool. send them to you guys. Hi, Bang. Yeah. Um, but... My favorite character is, mm-hmm. and Bang Bang's favorite character apparently is 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 Shiro or Blanche. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, nothing quite like a Nekotama to like throw in the mix. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I every time I would hear the word um, Shiro and they kept writing Blanche, I was like, Gretchen, Blanche is just the same word. It means white. Shiro, Shiro means white in Japanese. So I was like, "Why yeah. is the cat named Blanche?" I'm like, "Oh, because Blanche is, or is it Blanc? Blanche, Blanche." I think it's supposed to be Blanche. Blanche. So yeah. Blanche is white, right? Isn't yes. that the French word for white? Mm-hmm. Yes. That okay. That's, I, I I believe so. Okay. Yeah. You hear my cat? Mm-hmm. Yelling. He thinks it's dinner time just because the clock says five. Uh-oh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like that's my favorite character. I, I, it's like the most iconic image if, from the entire film is like that swirling background with Blanche's face, like spewing orange red blood out of its mouth. Uh-huh. Oh, that was crazy. That was crazy. I, Next that, to that painting is. So, yeah. So correct no. me if I'm wrong, but, and maybe this doesn't apply to Japan, but in most of the non-Western world, isn't white the color of death? Well, you wear a white kimono. And, and that might be a more of a Middle Eastern tradition. Yeah. But, but only, you know, only us Western Europeans associate black with death. Well, there, um, as far as I know, um, and my knowledge is limited on like um, death um, aspects of of Japanese culture, but, um, I just know that they're, they wear like a white kimono with a white, um, I guess a white headband. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe not all wear headbands. Some, maybe it's just a ghost thing. I'm not quite sure. I know in several Japanese comedies, uh, I I've seen people get sprayed with flour and then people run away from them because they think that they're ghosts. 
Oh yeah, like the like the Sadako thing. Always. Yeah. yeah Always. Yeah. Like Sadako is so famous in Japan that like she throws out the balls at baseball games. <laughs> if you can imagine how surreal that must look. And I mean to be a little kid watching on TV and then be like, What? Sadako throws the first ball? <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> It's bananas, bananas, bananas. Exactly. Exactly. Oh man, and the watermelon guy. Like he literally tells um what is the school the school teacher's name? Um like the professor's name tells him that they're being eaten by her. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, that's bananas. And he's like, he's trapped forever saying bananas, bananas, bananas. Yes. And and so uh, you're going to be really surprised what this reminds me of. Was that? What I meant, meant to. But so the only time I've ever seen dirty dancing was in an anthropology class. <sighs> and there's that scene where, where baby joins the group by carrying the watermelon. <laughs> and, and so my teacher stops it and says, this is, you know, symbolic of her becoming part of the group. It's like she's carrying a child. She's waddling. And so I could not watch that scene without <laughs> sort of associating, you know, hearing my anthropology teacher voice in the background. The watermelon is a symbolism of her becoming part of the group and giving birth to new life. <laughs> Poor Mac. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I did double check real quickly. White is the color of death in Buddhism. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> but yeah, no, no. Uh, th- these, 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 these seven, seven teens. Or I, I don't know how old uh, anyone's supposed to be. <laughs> it's just like, are they in college or are they in high school? I uh, think they're like high school students based okay. on the uniforms. Gotcha. Okay. Like, I but I, they, were... they may be like their last year. Okay. Because I think they're around 19 or so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it... Did you know that the director's daughter was a little girl that was at the shoemaker shop, like um, doing the shoes when they do that scene where they cut to weird, the weird village? Oh, mm-hmm. that makes sense. That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, but no, uh, one thing that this reminded me of, was a 1968 East German film called High Summer, which is a uh, hot summer in, in, in German. And it's about like a group of seven girls and seven boys who meet in the Ost Sea to have a crazy summer in the Baltics. And, um, you get to learn who all the girls are and they all have very specific personalities. And then you learn who all the boys are and they have very specific personalities, but it's like that movie, but there's no boys. And it's just like, you know, and instead of like wacky adventures on the Oast sea involving like people who, I don't know, packed fish. um, It's, it's, it's like, in Japan instead, but it's, 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 it's like the way that the uh, young ladies are portrayed and stuff like this. It's, it's like, they're slightly sexualized, but they're also kind of like, 
we've got so much optimism and future ahead of us, which is fun in a comedy and kind of terrifying in a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Because you know nothing's going to end up right for them. Yeah. And it's like, I'm also, by the way, when I said that earlier that it wasn't successful, I mean, commercially, the this was successful, was like really popular with like young people, but it wasn't, uh-huh. people don't like, didn't like it. Like, well, like, like critics didn't like it. Well, critics didn't like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday right? the 13th or Halloween or any of that stuff. So, Something I also read, though, that was originally released as a double feature with a romance called Pure Hearts and Mud. I haven't seen oh, it, but I've definitely checked that out. Okay. Which is interesting because a lot of times, like, Toho would do that, right? Like, yeah. so this film has, like, an 88-minute runtime. They would do, yeah. like, double feature releases. Um, oftentimes, you'd see that happen with, like, Henshin-style stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you would see, like, The Return of Ultraman and, you know, something else. Like, um yeah some other film that is long in that same wheelhouse. Kind of like what America did in the fifties and sixties. Sure. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Very cool. So so I've got, I have another thought. Yeah. Yeah. And this is probably again, what you bring into it, but the girls are all just so distinctive personality wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That what if, they're symbolic for different aspects of one person. Sure. I I didn't think of one person, but I thought they were definitely archetypal aspects. Yeah. yeah. At one point in time, I was trying to figure out if they were supposed to represent the seven sins. Yeah. Since... No, they're too. They're all innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Even like Mac, who everybody likes to hate on, calling her fat. I'm like that girl ain't fat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't I haven't seen them but I understand there's like pictures of her in like in a bathing suit and she's got like an incredibly flat chest I mean not yeah, chest yeah she's not fat that's calling her fat because whatever because she likes to eat because yeah. fat shame in Japan in 1977 Just yep. yeah they're like well we can't get anyone who's actually uh, plus size so we'll just we'll just get her <laughs> this girl has a round face but they're yeah. all like actually like um none of them are actually actors they're all like i mean they're commercial models or stuff like oh, that so okay. they're not that's why this is a very it's not considered well acted but yeah I, yeah and i i keep thinking melody is someone's mom <laughs> she is probably eventually <laughs> i know but it's like Melody, it, wait a minute. She looks a lot older than 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 the other ones, and I'm like, she's she, got a more mature attire, and like she uh, has that. Um, she's very like indicative of like uh, Showa era um, housewife. Okay, that's gotcha. her definite vibe. Because everyone seems kind of like young and fun, and even Professor, who's like, everyone's like they do the trope like, oh, you're so pretty without glasses. And she's like, but I can't see anything. And like, everyone seems kind of young and fun. And then Melody's like, oh, and, oh, and pr- pretty like cleaning everything all the time is like, like, what is up? <laughs> and I, I just, she is, she is a Showa era housewife. So yeah. I, I just assume it's like to be. cultural stuff. So, yeah. 
Can you explain Showa era? What, what, what do you mean by that? Oh, like um, the time era? Mm-hmm. Well, let me get a more technical. So Showa era is a period of Japanese history um, with, with the reign of Emperor Showa. Um, or like in um, people in America know him as like Hirohito. So okay. from 1926 um, until 1989. Gotcha. Okay. Which then was preceded by like Toshio um, era and then um, succeeded by the Heisei era. And then we're currently in the um, Reya era or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. Yeah. That's- that helps out a lot. A lot of times, like, um, <laughs> especially because my history of podcasting is on, um, on like, uh, talking about Japanese horror films or, sure. or uh, like, um, kaiju films. Yes, yeah. Um, generally, time periods of, are broken down by that. Like, whereas we say in the 70s or yeah. in the 60s or sure. in the 80s, this would be described as Showa, Toshio, Heisei. That makes sense. That makes total sense. That makes total Word. sense. Very cool. I'm, I'm Very cool. I'm always cool. worried right? how I don't explain that properly. <laughs> no, that works for me. That I, No, I, I totally get that. I totally get that. All right. So any other thoughts? Any other? I mean, I feel like we could probably talk about this for like another half hour, but I don't uh, know how yeah. interesting it's going to be. <laughs> any thoughts we have before we move on to that gentle night? Nah. I think we covered it. All right. Yeah. Well, that was Hausu. And if you check the show notes, you can go to the store and check out where to get my Heathcliffu. Uh, I think it's just Housecliff is what it says underneath it. It doesn't okay. say Heathcliff in. Oh, it says Heathcliff, uh, Heathcliffu underneath in uh, Katakana. Um, but yeah, that's available in the show shop which is in the show notes. You can check us out on Instagram. You can check us out on Facebook. You can check us out on YouTube. Uh, we're on whatever Twitter's called now, but I haven't been X. interested in Twitter for so long. <laughs> X. Yeah, so thank you again so much for coming and listening to us talk about What are we going to talk about next week? Next week? We are going to be talking about Swami Chandraputra and mm. the movie House. Nice. Yeah. With William Cat. With the greatest American hero or Condor Man or whatever you want to call that guy. Cool. This is one of my kid memories, like my deep kid movie memories. Oh, yeah. No, this is like cable horror movie like yeah no for me too as well all right well everyone we'll see you next time so check us out we're where i said instagram youtube facebook people's guide to the cthulhu mythos at pgttcm.com look for us find us uh let us know if you like the show uh and if you really really want to you can go to patreon which is in the show notes and help support the show. We need support because we don't have support right now. We do have a little bit of support, but we could always use more. So, hey. <laughs> All right. Gretchen, Dave, thank you again for being part of the show. And thanks, thanks. the listeners for 
listening. So yeah, 